imagine what it feels like to be in a community that is accessible, that is inclusive and that is sustainable. For smart communities, we want more people to join the conversation so then we can have more diverse conversations so we can include more problems that we wouldn't have identified, particularly for young professionals. We are the future of this space and we're well, not even the future of this space, we're the now of this space. At the Global Shapers Gold Coast Hub, we respect and honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past, present and future. We acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of theirs on this land and commit to building a brighter future together. Good day, hello everyone, welcome back to the Global Shapers Gold Coast podcast. So this episode of the podcast will be diving into the role of smart communities and regions, prompting us to think about things like decentralisation and mobility, systems thinking and everything else in between. Today's guest is a fellow untraditional engineer and a millennial with a passion for smart communities and smart regions. This is Zoe Ether. Welcome to the podcast, Zoe. Thanks so much, Michelle. I'm so excited to be here. So what I know about you is you love technology as an enabler to make places we live more accessible, livable and sustainable for all. Do you want to dive straight into what that's all about? Sure. My mission is to do whatever it takes to shape and influence the smart city conversation to be a smart community one because typically we start with technology. So what technology can I use to make my city smarter? But actually we need to start with the real needs of the community, which is a different, you know, skill set. It's a different conversation. And, you know, when we're talking about using technology as an enabler, we need to first talk about the problems that we're trying to solve. So that's what I do. I work with all levels of government, industry, regulatory authorities to actually have these smart community conversations because they really realise now that just having the latest tech is no longer going to cut it because our communities um, you know, are suffering with real problems. And one thing that the smart community conversation has to include is the people with the most at stake if we don't get this right as well, um, which is one of my key areas of focus is how do we make sure that we're we are enabling more inclusive communities um, and not just necessarily improving, you know, life for people that already have it good already. I've heard you talk about smart cities before as like sexy sustainability. We call it smart cities because that's a cooler way to, to think about it. What we're really doing is sustainability, improving the lives of the people that are interacting with those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the word might change, might be a different flag to wave, as um, Brooke Dixon, who's a fellow smart city evangelist, says. And whatever that flag is, we'll continue to wave it. Particularly for me, regional areas need to be included in the conversation, which is why I use smart community instead of smart city. I started off with the smart city podcast, April 2018-ish. Um, and I was having a lot of conversations with all different people from all around the world, but we just kept coming back to people, like, you know, that it's about people. But I wanted to then branch out further into regional areas, and I got regional people on the show, and I said, well, this is called Smart City Podcast, and I had to kind of explain myself when, you know, I'd be talking about, well, it's not Smart City, it's Smart Community, but then I have the Smart City Podcast. So I had to rebrand, and, you know, I did get a little bit of, comments back from some of my audience members that are 
people might not be able to find it because it's you know not smart city it's not the hashtag you know and I said well well actually that's not the reason I'm doing it the reason I'm doing this podcast is to make it more accessible for everybody which is really important for me um, that we continue to increase the digital literacy of our communities so then we can have better conversations but anyway that's when I also started my smart community which is my consultancy this is what I'm all about all about smart communities essentially let's change the hashtag you know now we should have people looking for smart communities smart regions more than smart cities right <laughs> that's the dream so talking about smart and cool regions where are you dialing in from today where are you so I am in Toowoomba which is in Queensland and is up the hill from Brisbane so tell us a little bit about Toowoomba did you get inspired by living in Toowoomba to pursue smart communities and regions or is it sort of a happy coincidence uh, a bit of a happy coincidence. So I'm from Roma originally, which again is uh, a small regional town, seven and a half thousand people. I grew up in regions, essentially, and I worked in regions. So I went to Brisbane to go to uni and then I moved back out um, and was working even further west in Tambo and Dhirambandi and in June and places like that. And what I really enjoyed about being in the regions is that sense of community um, and each community is very different. But anyway, the reason I got interested in smart cities is I'm a civil engineer, so I was working in construction and, you know, I was doing project management and those type of things. I came to Toowoomba to work on the Toowoomba Second Range Crossing. So it's a brand new road. It's all completed now. So I was working on that, I was working in the environmental team and that was that was great, big project. Um, you know, I always want to work on a big project, but roads really isn't my game, I realised. But I really wanted to work overseas, right? And I didn't think it'd be possible with state government. And, you know, as soon as that thought kind of entered my head, I got this email from um, our director general, our CEO. He'd just been to South Korea and we went to a road congress and he was really impressed, I guess, with the level of technology, but also the, the people that were working there and helping him organise his trip and all that type of stuff. So he wanted to send one of his engineers over there um, and do a bit of an exchange uh, with Trade Investment Queensland. And um, so I was like, oh, my God, this is perfect, perfect chance. And, you know, I speak Mandarin, which obviously isn't Korean, but I thought, you know, I've got a base of that language and then I can... I can learn Korean, which is very different. But anyway, so I got that. And so I lived and worked in South Korea for three months. And that's when I learned about the smart city concept. So I was looking at self-driving cars, connected technology, innovative construction methodologies. So I visited some really big projects. And I mean, it was just the best time ever. And I feel very privileged to be able to do that with you know the state government. When I was over there, I was like, this isn't as well known um, in Australia yet. But there were definitely people um, working on it. One of them was Adam Beck and one of them was Brooke Dixon. I was also very privileged when I was back in Australia to not go back to my um, original job, but actually work in the Cooperative and Automated Vehicle Initiative, which was working on self-driving cars for the Queensland government. And that was a brilliant project and still is um, continuing. I was like, how can I learn more about this concept in a, you know, in a, an effective way, right? Um, I'm a millennial, um, so I'm like, how can I use technology to be able to do this? So I chose to leave my good, secure government job, start podcasts and start my own consultancy. There was lots of opportunity to move you know, to Brisbane or even to other cities, but I wanted to remain in my regional area because we can't have these conversations only in the cities. You know, I, I wanted to be one of those people that started those conversations in our regional communities. 
That is a fantastic journey. And I think, you know, that wouldn't have been possible five or 10 years ago, but just the nature of the digital world we are now, you know, you can have these amazing opportunities to go overseas. And I, I think it's wicked that I think we both got inspired by smart cities in South Korea. So when I was living there, the coolest thing ever was when I caught my bus to school, it would say, how many minutes for the bus? So I could yeah. see, right, I've got seven minutes, got enough time to go and get some kimbap and come back and catch the bus, right? Yeah. Um, even things like, you know, the traffic lights that tell you you have 10 seconds left to cross the road as a pedestrian, those things blew my mind, you know, six years ago in South Korea. So um, I, I really admire that you've chosen to stay in Toowoomba and still be connected, still be not just an, a national, like Australian evangelist for smart cities, but definitely international. How has the space changed in the last couple of years since you started the podcast? Yeah, it's changed a lot. Everyone's probably heard of the hype cycle, um, the hype curve. What the hype cycle doesn't take it into consideration is that not every technology actually gets to the end, right? Not every technology becomes ubiquitous because some technologies are not supposed to and some take a lot longer. So I think what we need to realise is that not everything is inevitable, that it will be ubiquitous. And, you know, that should be exciting, right? Because that means that we are shaping what the future will look like. It's not set. Um, so, you know, if we don't want more vehicles on our road, whether they're driven or autonomous, then we can actually start making decisions now to be able to shape that. But going back to your question about um, what's changed, so the maturity of the conversations has changed or the maturity of the knowledge within smart cities. And also now we have project, you know, we're talking quite theoretical, you know, there were things happening in South Korea um, and there were things happening in the US, in Europe, in different parts of the world, but it was quite piecemeal and, you know, you'd hear about them, but you wouldn't know all of the details. You, you probably just hear the sexy things and not the actual lessons learned. Whereas now we actually have case studies where, you know, people have been able to see some of the benefits or some of the return on investments of the projects that they're putting down if they're measuring and monitoring those things. But you're also seeing this realisation or I guess like the, the reality hit that technology is not going to solve all of our problems. We have some really underlying complex issues that are really basic they're basic in the sense of, you know, they've been around for many years um, and they seem simple to solve, but there's so many complexities. And no amount of smart technology you throw at that, if the thinking hasn't changed, if we're only doing it the way we've always done it, then that, you know, smart technology isn't going to help that situation. So what I see is that now we're having um, more meaningful, deeper conversations because we're not overly excited or, you know, unnecessarily excited about the technology. We're actually looking at what it can enable and the impacts of that. And what I'm also excited about is when I do talk to local councils, it's about the mindset that they have. If you are able to convince your councillors to be able to do this, and which you have to be able to, then you can start actually doing some of these projects and realising some of the benefits. But if you haven't done that mindset work, if you don't have people that are interested um, and not just, 
passion and enthusiasm is is something, but you need those technical competencies and capabilities underneath because the passion may wane. Um, because a lot of these projects are really sexy up front. They're, they're going to be great. We're going to cut ribbons. But then actually it's just basic project management that is a make or break. So I think what we need to realise is that we won't have all of the skill sets required to be able to deliver these projects unless we actually make that a priority. What makes them smart community is a mindset shift that we can do it differently, that we are pushing against, you know, the things that we think are possible. So that's what makes it smart community and having that multidisciplinary approach as well. So then we can make sure that we are engaging with our community, but we also have the engineering that is required. These are, you know, important things of all projects, but actually when you're shifting that mindset, you've got a new brain that you're thinking with, you can actually do things that didn't seem possible before. Yeah, and I think, you touched on the technology part of things and I think smart becomes really misleading then because you think, okay, to be a smart city or a smart community, I need tech everywhere and everything needs to be digital and interacted with via an app. But like, I love what you're saying about a multidisciplinary approach and you really have the triple threat with having those engineering competencies, but it's also the project management and more importantly, like the passion and understanding of what is the actual problem that we're solving here? And I've, I've heard you say before that some of the pain points of, for example, mobility in cities are really just a symptom of underlying problems that seemingly unconnected, like public health and safety, which are making mobility inefficient. So, yeah, I think it's really important what you said with the multidisciplinary approach and being able to see underneath what's actually happening. Mm. You know, that this is a system, so um, which you reminded me of, you know, when we're talking about mobility, we're not just talking about the bus going around, you know, a particular route. That mobility option then affects people's uh, livelihoods if they're using it to get to work. It affects people's health if, you know, they're walking to the bus stop rather than driving their car, um, you know, air pollution, all those type of things. So, when we're talking about cities and we're talking about regions and we're talking about communities, we have to be talking about a system. So it's a system of systems. So I try and draw parallels between human things and technology things because actually we need to consider both um, as important as each other when we are talking about smart communities. Mm, And how everything's integrated in a wider ecosystem. But when you have that that lens, looking from above down at all these different systems that are interacting and you've been to lots of different cities and communities around the world, what are some of the industries or you know sectors of communities that are realising the potential and some that are maybe underestimating the risks of, of transforming their communities? You know, what are some of the potentials being missed and and risks that should be addressed? Yeah, for me, the local government um, has to be the driving force. Um, They need support uh, from a regional level and state level if we're talking about Australia. So for a local government, if they are driving this agenda, then we can actually make some real change in the community. And people talk a lot about it being grassroots. A community group has an idea and then they push that through and, you know, then that is how change is made, et cetera, et cetera. And then other people talk about that top-down approach where, you know, it has to be led by the the government by, you know, a mandate or your regulation or whatever. But actually it needs to be both because 
when we, we want the community active, we want them involved, we want them engaged, but then they need support. You can only live on passion for so long, right? Because also people burn out if it's only grassroots um, level as well, which is not what we want either. So, um, so if we talk about overseas, uh, uh, what I found on my travels uh, when I was on my Winston Churchill Fellowship and I was looking at mobility in, in um, particular, is that we're all kind of talking about the same things across the globe. The key ingredient is actually having that governance approach. A lot of them are like a smart city office or a smart mobility office or a smart community office. So then people know where they need to go to if they have an idea about smart mobility or if they want to learn more about it or if their business wants to tap into the ecosystem or the private company wants to get in with other businesses, et cetera, et cetera. And the power of that has been um, really eye-opening for me. So two examples are Smart Dublin. I've had um, Alan Murphy on my podcast and I met with them when I was there. They brought kind of the four councils that are in um, that Dublin area uh, and basically, they have worked across those and are doing a bunch of different projects. They're able to understand the, the needs with each of the councils. And then they were able to um, bring in the innovators, or whether it's a tech company or a community or whatever. And because it's an integrated approach that they can then easily share the learnings across the different councils, across the community. Because some of the time, it's just getting started that is the hardest part. Um, one of the other examples recently when I was in the US earlier this year, I went to Smart Columbus and they won a grant um, from the Department of Transport around mobility. So they have been able to lift the literacy of the community in the sense of electric vehicles and mobility choices and changing that mindset of what uh, mobility actually is and what how can we make it more sustainable, more, more accessible. What I like about them is that they're focusing on some of their um, neighbourhoods that need the most um, assistance. Um, the neighbourhoods that don't have access or didn't have access to the network, their focus is on extending bus um, services into those um, areas, but also using technology. So they are using an autonomous bus and they co-created the route with the community. So originally they were like, okay, well, this is the route we think. They went into the community. The community said, no, we want to go to this community centre and this, you know, other shopping centre or something like that. They'll get learnings out of using technology, um, build the public awareness of different technologies that are available, but it's actually offering a service that wasn't available um, before to give people access. And I think that's a really important point that it's, for me, it's all well and good to have an autonomous vehicle in a really wealthy suburb or whatever. Um, that's great, high five, but it doesn't really fit for me into the smart community conversation because it's not helping, um, you know, the basic population and the public good. Yeah, and each community is going to have different needs. It's like what you said, yeah. the Smart Columbus project, they looked at, okay, what does our community actually need? And it might not be the same as another community. And I think that comes back to the whole think global but act local where we really need to be yeah. aware of what problem are we actually trying to solve and who are the communities here that actually need our help and it might not be the ones that talk the loudest it might be the ones um, that are so disadvantaged that don't even have a seat at the table at the moment so I think that's yep. a really good insight and your your passion is so contagious and I just love that you've been able to collate like wins and losses from different communities 
uh, around the world um, and share them with other people. And I want to ask a little bit more about things like the Winston Churchill Fellowship and other opportunities that you've had to actually chase down that passion and how have, how have you done all this? This is amazing. I guess for me, I've always looked for opportunities, which, you know, sounds a bit cliche, but I mean, physically like going on the internet and looking for opportunities that are available because there are so many opportunities that are available. And particularly um, if you fit into like a regional area, for example, like we are looking to increase that diversity of opportunities across the board. In my experience, that's what I'm looking, you know, I've been looking at and, you know, increasing um, women in STEM and all those type of things as well. So really use that and, and get in there. It's it's not just like, oh, oh, I wish there was an opportunity. No, you actually have to go and put yourself out there and Google things and or DuckDuckGo or whatever, you know, Firefox them um, to actually get out there and have and have a look at what's available. Now it, it is a little bit of a hurdle to actually start putting yourself out there because what if somebody says no? Or what if someone says, who do you think you are to be able to do this? And that's a mindset thing, right? For me, being visible is is sometimes difficult, but being invisible was more challenging for me because I wasn't able to make the difference in the world. And if you think about it, like the reason I'm visible is because I want to make a difference in the world and people need to see me so then they can make a difference as well. I think once you work out what um, your mission is, then it's it's easier to be able to pick and choose which ones you want to do. So Winston Churchill is a no-brainer. Um, everyone should apply because it's it doesn't cost you anything to apply, but you need to then work out what that mission is, what that passion is. And, you know, those things will change over time. And, you know, having just a passion is, is, is not going to get you there. You also have to work out, well, how is this going to be, if it's going to be your business or if it's going to be, um, you know, a hobby or, or whatever. But the first thing, important thing that you have is you found your why and you have your reason and everything you do is back to that, uh, you know, motivation of for the greater good and what the work you're doing is going to benefit people in the end. They just don't realise it yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And this is obvious, but if you don't apply, then, you know, you're not going to get it. But also if you're not looking, you're not going to find them. You have to work hard in this world to be able to um, find those opportunities, get those opportunities, and then really leverage that so that you can make an impact. Um, so, you know, once you've done the thing, then use that as a platform to do other things. So my Churchill Fellowship, for example, has been has given me a platform to speak. Um, you know, I did speak before, but now I have a greater platform to speak because I've written a report, I can pull the findings from the report, but I also have a clear message. Mm, cool. Well, you've been uh, to a lot of interesting places around the world on your smart cities opportunities, but how do you think that Toowoomba and the Gold Coast where we are and Southeast Queensland in general measure up on a global scale for data-driven smart communities? Yeah, I think we have we have a lot of work to do in the mindset shift. It really depends on you know what we want to see for our community. Um, for Toowoomba, we're 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 on a journey, um, and we're starting to think about what's happening in the smart community space. But there are also key ingredients of smart communities that 
Toowoomba has. We have green space. Um, you know, we have community events. We have, you know, a rich tapestry of uh, small business. We have a, a really great educational hub. So I think it's really important to look at those key ingredients that we already have and then work out what are the things that we that we're trying to solve and then looking at those ingredients looking at those pain points then thinking about well what data do we already have available what do we need to collect and monitor and and continue to improve this already um, you know kind of rich recipe of ingredients that we already have then we take some action and then we go back and look at our vision. But I think we're getting there. But I think we really need to not discount ourselves um, being in regional areas. So I think what we um, need to do is really start having yet yeah, more smart community conversations and then hopefully we can shift that mindset enough so then we can start you know, seeing some of this action in the space. Yeah, I think that's the movement that you have with the smart communities and smart regions is a lot more inclusive than what people traditionally think and, and you're getting rid of the myth that it has to be technology to be smart. I think that's definitely going to open up the door for more innovation. Um, but I want to fast forward 10 years, Zoe, and yep. ask you what is your ideal best case scenario for our smart communities and what is the potential worst case scenario that we need to strive to avoid? Yeah, great question. So each community will be different. We will have this rich diversity of, you know, available offerings in education, the things that we buy, the food that we eat, our health choices, and employment obviously is one of those as well. Obviously in this current crisis that we're in, uh, we're becoming location independent for our skills, right? So we can actually access people that have the skills that we need without physically going to them. Um, and again, you need to be thinking sensibly about decentralization and not allowing for, for sprawl and all those type of things. Um, but we'll see people living where, you know, they're afforded the lifestyle that really meets their needs, but then they can still access a global community. So very basic things like making sure we have reliable and accessible internet connection. We're able to increase that digital literacy so then people are able to access it. We've increased our data literacy as well. So we're also empowered about what our data is being used for and who we're giving it to. So the digital divide is actually closing. And imagine what it feels like to be in a community that is accessible that is inclusive and that is sustainable. So no matter who you are, you're able to uh, choose and be um, able to access opportunities that are based on, um, you know, the things that you really want to achieve in life. That feeling of being in a smart community, that feeling will be the same, but the context will be different. So you'll feel you'll you know, if you're in Toowoomba, you'll feel something. and But when you're in the Gold Coast, you'll feel something else because the environment will be different. Um, and I think we really need to then hone in on those things and really amplify our, you know, the, the good points, you know, everywhere is going to have a beach, for example, but really then focusing in on that for, for a Gold Coast experience. And then the people that want that feeling, then they go to the smart community that's at the Gold Coast. Um, whereas people that want a more... I don't know, relaxed lifestyle or whatever, go to Toowoomba or maybe they go to 
um, Roma if they want a more outback experience. I don't know, whatever it is. Um, but we have these hubs um, where uh, we can access knowledge, we can access information, we can access our global communities. And as a young professional, I love the idea that I can choose where I live based off of the lifestyle I want rather than the work I want to do. The, I think the first thing you said was, you know, the work you do becomes independent of your location. And that is an ideal future, I think, for all of us. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, we're getting a bit of a taste of it now. And I I think that people get really worried that then that means that we're only working from home and never seeing people in person ever again. But I don't think that's the case. We will be able to um, use our time more wisely. For me, mobility has to be there. And that's physical, that's um, digital, and that's um, societal as well. So you should be able to move physically through sustainable means, whatever public transport looks like. It won't look like just a you know a bus cruising around with one person in it. It'll be on on demand, more sustainable modes, et cetera, et cetera. And then from a digital perspective, we all have accessible, reliable internet. We've increased that digital literacy and people um, know how to access that. And then societal, we should be able to access different opportunities no matter where um, we we come from. Um, so that's really important. I love your underlying message of putting power in the people's hands, like letting them know uh, that they have the digital literacy skills to access that information and those services. So what would you say, what advice would you give to listeners, say, like me, who aren't in government or policy or right in the smart city space, but want to make an impact in shaping the future of the city? What can we do as citizens? Yeah, yeah. Um, great question. And it is about starting that community. So even though you feel like even you might not be in the smart community space, everyone is in the smart community space if they want to join the conversation. So you might um, be really interested in, um, I don't know, data privacy, for example. So you can start joining the conversation and, and start following people on LinkedIn so you can join it digitally. But then you might go to um, some uh, events and just keep increasing and you'll be able to keep having different touch points with different people. You get different ideas. And one of the biggest things is you don't need to be an expert to join the conversation. Um, you just need to join it. So I think for smart communities, we want more people to join the conversation so then we can have more diverse conversations so we can um, include more people or include more problems that we wouldn't have identified if it was only you know the same type of people having those conversations. And particularly for young professionals, I think, um, because we we are the future of this space, I guess, and we will not even the future of this space. We're the now of this space. Yeah. We have knowledge that um, you know decision makers at higher levels don't have because they haven't grown up in this time or whatever, um, and don't underestimate the value that we can bring to this conversation as well. And here at the Global Shapers Gold Coast, we're all about you know, fostering genuine collaboration. Uh, and empowering youth to stand up to uh, every level of government and council and leader and tell them what they really think and what they really want. And we've actually got a couple of questions in from some of our hub members and our listeners for you today, Zoe. One of our listeners is interested to hear what your thoughts are on the concept of bioregionalism in smart communities. So bioregionalism being constraining human activity in geographical boundaries rather than political ones because 
looking after the earth in this modern era is especially important with our technologically advanced species of human at the moment. So what do you think about bioregionalism? Yeah, really interesting concept. And as we um, were saying, you know, smart cities in smart communities is just sexy sustainability. So I think it's really, I guess, important that we consider the environment and consider our actions um, when we are when we are, I guess, living in this world and how we're working in this world. So it's something that needs to be part of the conversation. And I think technology can help us do that. And I'm talking about like not necessarily traveling all the time, but actually doing less using digital is one of those ways that needs to fit into that as well. But then we also need to think about the full life cycle of the technology that we're purchasing um, and using and how we are impacting and are we actually understanding like the full um, repercussions of what technology is doing um, to our environment. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I might just expand on that um, and ask if you'd seen any good examples of cities around the place that had incorporated the natural environment really well into their urban environment. Yeah. When I was in Barcelona, um, they have this theory called the superblock. And basically, it's about bringing in our needs closer to us. Um, so rather than like uh, having to travel a great distance for, you know, the hospital or the um, university or whatever, it's all contained, um, like kind of sensibly decentralizing these these um, services in this super block, which is uh, walkable and being able to cycle. Um, and you can still have a car, but you only locals are able to access the roads and it's less than 10 kilometers an hour. You know, it's basically to get to the house and then uh, park and then, um, you know, getting out again, it's not um, for through traffic. And that, and it's a very old concept um, and they've been doing it since the nineties. And what that does is it brings in green space closer to where we live as well. And I guess we're very spoiled in Australia to have green space in our backyards at our front door. But in Barcelona, you, they actually need to really focus in on that. Otherwise, they'll lose that. So being able to bring that green space in so then people can walk and cycle. So you, you're decreasing the amount that you use your car in a way that people don't feel like they're losing out on anything. And they also have, you know, the green space like um, and children's playgrounds in the middle of intersections um, and that type of thing. So, yeah, it's a really interesting concept. So uh, I think incorporating um, that into our urban landscapes and incorporating green space into our urban landscapes is a really key part of smart communities. Yeah, I love the idea of super blocks. And it, it made me think of a quote from Wired magazine I read this week saying that people protest when their their freedom of having a car is put at jeopardy so people think having a car is freedom but really it's you're forced to have a car in the cities that we've constructed whereas with the super block real freedom is being able to walk be walking distance from all of your uh, needs so yeah i think that's an interesting concept i'm glad you brought that up uh, we have another question uh, that's that's from our listeners so they want to ask you zoe about the power dynamics that are shaping the future of our cities? And are we really living in a democracy if so much power sits with the tech companies and the engineering companies that, that are actually building our cities in the background? Yeah, it's a really great 
um, question and uh, something I, I think a lot about, um, particularly with the tech companies. I touched on a little bit earlier about increasing our digital literacy and our data literacy, because they're actually two different things. You can use your computer, you can access um, the internet, you can download all the apps, et cetera, et cetera. So you can be digital literate without understanding what that means for your data. Um, I feel old now, but I can remember a time without the internet. And now it's it's to opt into modern society, you must opt into the internet. So what we need to be doing is really increasing our data literacy as much as possible. So then we maybe shouldn't be completely opt-in for everything. We still want to be able to access the service, but maybe we don't have to give over every single piece of our data to be able to do that. Um, so it is about being informed and it is about being empowered. Um, and for me, Smart Communities has to help us to do that and not the reverse. So we don't want to be putting more power into the hands of people that don't necessarily have the public good at heart. So we really need to hone in on that and continue to increase our literacy in this space. So then we can actually start having these conversations and because they create movements. Um, and once there's enough momentum, then we can shift that power back to the people where it belongs. How can we do that? How can we start being more data literate and learning more about the power that we're giving over? It really starts with looking at what we are connected to. So for me, well, I'm always uh, investigating what um, things I've opted into. I know that they uh, they use my data for things behind the scenes and, and I have accepted that that for now I'm comfortable with. So actually understanding um, and, and looking at those things and realising that you can turn some things on and off and now that we have some more uh, laws coming into place um, and just start reading up on what those laws actually mean. And I try and do it more and more, but obviously takes a lot of time, is actually reading data, um, private privacy policies. And you won't understand everything. I guess, you know, that's how the way they're written. But just starting to increase it little by little and then when something's optional don't put it in um if you know you don't have to put in your mobile phone number don't put it in that's just another piece of data that they don't necessarily need to be able to offer you that service uh, just being aware of what value you're handing over and what value you are getting in return are you comfortable with the level of value exchange that is happening um, so for example if i'm using a rideshare app i will have my location on for when I'm using the app, but then I will turn it off when I'm not using the app. Um, and I, um, you know, am, am aware that I need to have my location on to be able to use the app appropriately and get the service that I want. So it's, yeah, it is just about having a think about the things that we have offered up um, and then actually taking some of those back um, where we can. One of the things that's really scared me lately, especially with everyone, you know, being in isolation at home, they're playing a lot of games on like Facebook and Instagram, uh, yeah. things like select your three favorite albums or, you know, what does your face say about you? And every single game that we play, someone's taking that data and we don't know what they're doing with it. And I went to play one of them the other day and they're, all of the things that they want access to, 
it, you had to select, I allow you to have my microphone and I allow you to send emails to all my contacts. So I think that's a simple thing that people are definitely not paying enough attention to at the moment. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And and yeah, realizing that every time you're getting something for free, you're not getting it for free. You are the product. Like there's so many things that we put out there that is sensitive information, but we don't realize it. You know, I read a thing the other day, you know, give us all the answers to these questions. Um, and they're quite personal questions. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, people can access that and then they can guess passwords and all those type of things and, um, you know, security questions. And so I think we just need to be more aware about what information and data we're putting out there. And the internet is written in pen and not pencil is what someone said to me the other day. Um, so just thinking and considering those things when we are putting stuff um, out there and things we're signing up for as well. And then also deactivating things that we're not using anymore because they're still getting data from us, um, even though we might not be using them. Um, just really doing a bit of a privacy audit. Um, and you won't understand everything and that's fine. Um, uh, and we continue to, um, you know, increase that literacy for ourselves and other people as well. Oh, I think that's some actionable insights that we can leave our listeners with is to go and do a privacy audit of all your data. Um, one yeah. more thing I wanted to ask you for, Zoe, was if you could give our listeners a brain food recommendation for this week, whether that's something to listen, watch or read. Yes. Um, so obviously the Smart Community Podcast. Um, it's good. I'm, I'm a big fan. So I don't mind that one. Um, no, that's my own plug. I don't mean to selflessly plug my own podcast. Oh, but you should. It's great. <laughs> um, if we're on the topic of privacy, uh, Privacy Matters is another podcast that I really enjoy, which is um, one of my good friends, Nicole Stevenson, um, puts that out there. Um, so she is awesome. Um, I have been reading a lot lately um, and – around you know different things to what people think is going to happen like post-covid and that type of thing um, but i still do listen to a lot of podcasts um, although my podcasts i've been listening less because i'm not commuting right there are so many things available right now and it can be quite overwhelming i think um, so i tend to read articles on on linkedin or you know pieces that that other people that i really admire um, post um, or people that I've been following and then really critically, I guess, analysing what that means for, for us. Um, so what else have I been reading lately? I think another good thing to read, I actually loved your Winston Churchill Fellowship Report. Um, I found that online. Um, yeah, I definitely found the insights really interesting. How can people find that online as well? Yes, they can. Um, if you just Google Zoe Ether Churchill, it should come up. I'm trying to give you something that isn't mine, so I'm not only talking about me. Um, <laughs> well, that's my recommendation. <laughs> but Debbie Reynolds is another amazing, um, she's called the Data Diva, um, and she's just brilliant. She's an American lady. So if people are interested in that data aspect, I would definitely recommend following her. Oh, I think that's a plenty of things to leave our listeners with for today. I feel like we could keep talking for another like few hours, but maybe we'll just yeah. leave it for now and do like a, a follow-up another day. I'm pretty biased with my smart community interests, so <laughs> we'll keep that going. Yeah, awesome. So thank you again for your time today, Zoe. It was, it was great to have a chat. I've been waiting a while to um, have a solid chat with you.
and I, I really wish we could have recorded this in person, but you know, that's first world problems. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll catch up again another time, I'm sure. Yeah, no, sounds good. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, have a good one and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Michelle. Talk soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks all for listening to the Global Shapers Gold Coast podcast, The Power of Youth in Action. Stay up to date with the impact we're creating locally and globally by following us on Instagram and all the other things. A lot of effort goes into delivering these podcasts behind the scenes. So I really like to thank all of our hub members and our listeners who put in the questions. Um, I wouldn't be able to do this without you guys. I'd like to wrap up today with an excerpt from Zoe's Winston Churchill Fellowship Report. If we start thinking of our commute as a way to increase our health and well-being, and if it were planned in such a way, well, the prioritisation of modes and concepts would look a bit different. I'll leave you guys with that one. Go out into the world and find what you're passionate about and chase it down and think about the reasons why and how you can make it happen. Reach out to us at the Global Shavers Gold Coast if you think we can help you on that journey. Thanks again and we'll talk to you next time.